from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I'd like to have the roasted chicken, please. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. We spend a lot of time on Studio 360 talking about movies, which is why every year we can't help ourselves and devote a whole show to filmmakers and actors up for Academy Awards. This is that show. The Oscar ceremony still gets a huge television audience, 25 or 30 million in the U.S., but the numbers are not what they used to be. The fraction of Americans watching lately is half what it was in 2000. To try to keep the franchise from collapsing, the Motion Picture Academy has been anxiously, desperately fiddling, kind of like a presidential campaign in trouble. Maybe more people would watch if it's shorter? So they just announced they were cutting the awards for Best Cinematography and Best Editing and a couple of other non-celebrity categories from the TV show. But then got hell for that and backpedaled and dithered up to the last minute. This year, they also stumbled into going without a host at all, right after they'd announced a host with a history of homophobic statements and, 48 hours later, ditched him. Which reminded me of how last summer they announced a new Oscar for Best Popular Film, since maybe if more superhero movies were up for big awards, that might make more people watch. But then quickly decided, nah, bad idea, never mind. A decade ago, that same populist logic drove the Academy's fiddling decision to increase the Best Picture nominees from 5 to 8 or 9 or 10. Bigger tent, maybe more viewers. But all that really means is there are now some Best Picture nominees every year that really aren't that great, let alone best. And which this year results in a particularly weird disconnect bad movies nominated for Best Picture that were pretty much nominated because of a leading actor who gave a great performance. Such as Mahershala Ali as the black jazz classical musician Don Shirley in Green Book, a movie of cliché piled upon cliché in which the great Ali, such range this guy has, is obliged to make the best of Scenes like this. I've never had fried chicken in my life. You people love the fried chicken. You have a very narrow assessment of me, Tony. Yeah, right? I'm good. Then there's Bohemian Rhapsody, also cliche-ridden, a very meh script and a very long movie. Freddie, concerning your private life. What more do you need to know? I make music. But which is almost worth the two and a quarter hours just to watch the new movie star, Rami Malek, play Freddie Mercury. He is riveting. Which I'd also say about the astoundingly skillful impersonation of Dick Cheney that Christian Bale gives in Vice. I'm CEO of a large company. I have been uh, Secretary of Defense. I have been Chief of Staff. Uh, The Vice Presidency is mostly a... uh, symbolic job. Right, right. 
but only if you stop watching and maybe halfway through before the movie becomes so ham-fisted that even a non-Republican like me got angry. So, three great performances nominated for acting awards in three not-great movies nominated for Best Picture. You know what they say, hate the game, not the player. But there are excellent performances this year in excellent movies as well. For instance, the literary caper, Can You Ever Forgive Me?, features a terrific one by Richard E. Grant. His first movie, the 1987 classic With Nolan and I, and his most recent, Can You Ever Forgive Me?, have some things in common. Neither had very big budgets. Both are dark comedies set 20 or 30 years before they came out. Both are about an odd couple of bohemian drinking buddies living in squalor. And each features Richard E. Grant superbly playing a character who's a fascinating mix of swagger and pathos, dissolute and grand uh, at the same moment. Grant played Withnull in Withnull and I as this unstable, untrustworthy, unemployed actor. I must have some booze. I demand to have some booze! This is a far superior drink to meths. The wankers don't drink it because they can't afford it. And in Can You Ever Forgive Me, he plays a charming, untrustworthy, real-life grifter named Jack Hawk. He is the confidant and then co-conspirator of the real-life literary forger Lee Israel, played by Melissa McCarthy. Last time I saw you, thank you, we were both pleasantly pissed at some horrible book party. Am I right? It's slowly flooding back to me. Can I buy you a drink, even though you're the posh writer? Thank you. Craigie, top up. The role just got Grant his first Academy Award nomination, as well as a gazillion other nominations and awards. And he is here to talk about Withnell and Jack Hawk and some other character he's played during the 30 years in between. Richard E. Grant, welcome to Studio 360. Thank you very much. And you are here where Lee Israel was five years ago. Seriously? Yes, indeed. Well, please tell me about her. She, she was full of energy and fun and not very contrite. <laughs> And how difficult was she? Not at all. She was happy to be here. Gosh, yeah. I'm not, I've, that, that's unusual to hear. Yes. Except yeah. I keep hearing how curmudgeonly and prickly she was. Um, you have a, obviously, an English accent, but you have a distinct accent that you attribute entirely to your somewhat peculiar uh, growing up. I grew up in Swaziland, which is the smallest country in the Southern Hemisphere. And it's in Southeast Africa between Mozambique and South Africa. And it was under... British protectorate jurisdiction when I was growing up because my father was the Minister of Education, which is why I went to school there. And so I suppose the, the way that I speak is people identified it when I emigrated to London in 1982 that it was like somebody who spoke from the 1950s because uh-huh. the yeah. expatriate, expatriate community there, I suppose, were in a time warp. Does it make you seem more posh than you were? I'm sure it does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and Swaziland is no longer Swaziland. I looked it up. Yes. It's the uh, kingdom of... Uh, two, two months ago, it changed. the king changed its name uh, on the 50th anniversary of its independence uh, from the British. So it's now called Eswatini. So this diction, <laughs> owing to your colonialist ch- childhood, did it affect the roles uh, for which you were cast? You know, if you're an English actor, you inevitably get 
cast in everything from Agatha Christie to Dickens to historically based uh, projects. So I think that's probably because of the way I look and sound that has affected my casting. Yeah, It's almost for somebody else to decide how and what you do. And, and usually the experience is that, that a casting director or a director chooses you according to how they think you fit into their vision of something. So you're kind of, you know, tart for hire, really. Yeah. Tart for hire. The next memoir you can write called Tart for Hire. Tart for Hire. <laughs> um, um, growing up in Southern Africa, did you decide at 5 or 10 or 12 that you wanted to be an actor? How did that come about? I never, it didn't seem realistic from where I grew up because there was no precedent for it to earn your living as an actor. And I think my my father right. thought that I'd be destitute and spend my life, you know, wearing makeup and tights. So And there you go. There I am. And you have. As I'm sitting here now, fully in made tights. up. In tights as we speak. <laughs> um, so with Noel and I, there are, I, it's hard to think of many more memorable debuts in film than you had in that movie. Well, thank you. The irony is that I played an unemployed actor and that film has led to every subsequent job that I've ever had. So how did Bruce Robinson, the writer and director of With Noel and I, find you, end up casting you? He had offered it to Daniel Day-Lewis, and because he turned that down to do the unbearable lightness of being, it then left the field open for everybody else. He's a drinker, a terrible drinker in that film, uh-huh. um, and you aren't and haven't been ever, right? No. Um, my father's an alcoholic, and my grandfather was, but and I assume that you I— You didn't take up the family I, tradition? Yeah, the family tradition. I thought I might have been because I couldn't keep alcohol down for more than 10 minutes, and I thought it was psychosomatic, and I had a blood test with a doctor— when I was 17, and he said, you have no enzyme, you can never ever drink, it's completely toxic. So I have no experience of alcohol whatsoever. But you were able to observe people in drunken conditions. Oh, yeah, yeah. That uh, fierce concentration that they need, you know, to get across a room trying to not appear drunk. So that seemed to me the key to how to play it. I want to talk about one of my very favorite scenes in that film, which is the ending. Yes. Um, your character says goodbye to, to uh, his friend, the Paul McGann character, and leaves you standing alone at the zoo uh-huh. in London. And you, playing Whitnell, launches into this speech. And this is it. What a piece of work is a man. How noble in reason. How infinite in faculties. How like an angel in apprehension. How like a god. The beauty of the world. Pagan of animals. Yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? That was you giving this magnificent uh, soliloquy. Uh, you took off your headphones. You don't want to hear yourself? No. Do you uh, like listening back to yourself? I don't hate it. Yeah, I, I hate it. Really? Yeah. I always just hear or see what's wrong. wrong. Yeah. yeah, I get that. So knowing that character as well as anybody, uh, why does he give that speech? Why Why is that his... Because he never succeeded as an actor. And so the only audience he has at the end of that story when his friend has finally got a first big theater break and leaves, he only has the wolves <laughs> in the London Zoo as his audience. And they are not... <laughs> appreciative of his efforts. I laughed out loud again, as I do every time I see it, when halfway, two-thirds of the way through the speech, the wolf looking up at him just walks away. 
Yeah. It's pretty lovely. Um, you worked with Robinson uh, twice, but then you worked with Robert Altman. Three times. Three times, yes, right? absolutely uh, wonderfully. I the Player, it. one of my favorite movies of all time. Thank you. Prada-Porter and, uh, and Gosford Park. Mm-hmm. Famously, he encouraged actors to improvise. Yes, which is a real gift. And where it worked best was in, in The Player and in Gosford Park. They were very, very tightly scripted. And then he encouraged and allowed for and accommodated improvisation around that script. In The Player, uh, you play a screenwriter. Uh, do, do you remember any specific ad-libs of yours that, that made it into the finished film? Oh, yeah. A lot of the pitch that I, I gave, I, I, because I know a fair number of screenwriters in L.A., and I went to all of them and I said, can you please show me or tell me what are the most extreme things you've done in pitch meetings? And so I took notes and improvised quite a lot of that. Cut from the DA to an upmarket suburban neighborhood. It's murder. The DA decides to go for the big one. He's going to put the wife in the gas chamber. Then he finds out the husband is alive, that he faked his death. The DA breaks into the prison, runs down death row. But he gets there too late. She's dead. I'll tell you, there's not a dry eye in the house. More recently, and of course we could go on for hours because... There, I, I started counting the roles on IMDb. I, I got up to 50 on feature films and I, I didn't That's even... That's because I'm so old. I didn't, well, <laughs> I mean, both of us. But uh, I, I didn't even count the television roles, of which you've done probably as many, including recently Game of Thrones, Isambaro. Yeah. Um, for the five or six non-viewers uh, of Game of Thrones, <laughs> explain who he is. He is a manager of a troupe of traveling players in Game of Thrones who, and then... They reenact some of the key episodes of this story. Here's a scene after performance of your play. You're the writer as well as the lead actor. Your leading lady, Lady Crane, played by uh, Essie Davis, suggests that you revise your script. Yes, you are adored by people and animals alike. I do what I can with what I'm given. <laughs> what you're given? Well, I was thinking. Oh, we're all thinkers now, are we? Fool to the tits with ideas. I didn't mean... You have ideas, I have ideas, he has ideas. Why should my ideas have any more value than yours? Simply because I've been doing this my whole life. Who's anyone to judge my work? This is my profession. I know what I'm doing. You have no right to an opinion. The creators of the show were with Nell Founds, and they had said to Nina Gold, the casting director, we have to find the Game of Thrones version of Withnail for this traveling player. So that's how that came about. So Jack Hawk in mm-hmm. Can You Ever Forgive Me, that was a real person? A real person. He's from Portland in Oregon, and he died at the age of 47 in 1994 of AIDS. Uh, there are no photographs of him. and Which is weird. Yeah, and there are no friends of his are still alive because they all died of AIDS. So, and we, we've surmised that he was disowned by his family because we have no record of that. Although I'm, I'm surprised that with this movie going out, somebody on his family hasn't come forward to claim him. And when I was cast, I asked Marielle Heller, our wonderful director, whether I was to do a Portland accent or uh, a New York. And she said, no, 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 I, d- I don't want that. I want you to speak as you do. So I was somewhat disappointed because I thought this is my chance to play an American again. But um, As all what, British actors must do. Yeah, that's what she wanted. So I didn't huh. argue. 
But given how what a cipher he was, uh, he might as well have lived in the 18th century or earlier. Um, how, did you, how did you figure out how to play him? From Lee Israel's memoir, I found that he had used a little stubby cigarette holder. And I asked if I could use that because I thought that immediately gave me a sense of, I suppose, a kind of Petro tool sense of self-image that involves that. Yes. Because I've never met any man in my real life who smokes with a cigarette holder that lives you know, beyond 1954. So I took that. And the other thing that she revealed in, in the memoir is that once she had been rumbled by the FBI and could no longer go out and sell these forged letters, Jack Hawk went out and where she anticipated that he'd come back with three, four hundred bucks, he would manage to fleece people of 2,000. So I knew from that that he had some kind of street smarts or charm that he could go and do that. Well, it's interesting that you say that this, this Peter O'Toole 1954 thing – Again, it sounds as though this dated bubble in which you grew up, yeah. which was still 1954 when you were growing up in 1973, <laughs> yeah. uh, maybe gave you a way into that as well? Yes, probably. Yeah. That's for you, Dr. Freud, to decide. Okay. Well, our 15 minutes are up. Okay. Um, here's a clip. You're friends with um, Julia Steinberg. Yeah. She's not an agent anymore. She died. She did? Jesus, that's young. Maybe she didn't die. Maybe she just moved back to the suburbs. I was confused there too. No, that's right. She got married and had twins. Better to have died. Indeed. That is uh, Richard E. Grant and Melissa McCarthy in Can You Ever Forgive Me? And uh, watching that, I'm reminded that Mariel Heller, the director, was correct, I think, in having you be English. Right? Okay. I mean, it just sells the particular charming rogue thing more easily than if you had a Portland accent. I'm not sure there is such a thing, but, you know. Well, take your word for I it. I think. I'm not arguing. Last but not least, you're, you're in the next Star Wars movie. I am. The, the final, final Star Wars movie. The final movie. Star Wars movie, which comes out on the 19th of December. Bad guy? Good guy? I have no idea. Really? I'm not allowed to. I, it is, the embargo of, on information is so <laughs> Fort Knox-like that to give you, just to reassure you, my wife and daughter do not know the name of my character. Really? Yeah. So you do know the name of your character, and you do know if he's bad or good. I do know all those things, uh, yes. Um, wow. What would they do to you if you just sort of talked about it right now, do you think? Uh, I think I'd be kneecapped um, <laughs> and fired and um, probably cut out Cut out your things, yeah. yeah. Um, cut out your things. Um, <laughs> uh, and I'll bet J.J. Abrams is directing this, right? He is, yeah. And, and I'm betting he's a big With Nolan I fan. Did he say he... that? He... Is yeah, but I mean he's a big yeah he's a he's a movie geek so I know. He, he has seen and knows everything. So awards, who cares, right? Oh, <laughs> if you've never been nominated for anything in your life and you suddenly at my age get you know a landslide of them and awards from critics and things, that I do not take lightly and I've enjoyed every nanosecond of the ride so far. Nice. I don't feel cynical about it at all. I'm thrilled. Yes, well. Enjoy it. I am. Um, Richard E. Grant, this was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Richard E. Grant has been nominated for a bunch of awards this year and won some. You can watch Can You Ever Forgive Me on Amazon or iTunes, and you can also listen to my interview with the real Lee Israel at studio360.org. Studio 360's American Icon series has explored 
dozens of important and influential works of literature, music, film, architecture, design, all kinds of visual art. We've done segments on cultural touchstones like the Muppets and Andy Warhol's soup can paintings and full hours on the Lincoln Memorial and Monticello and Richard Wright's native son. It's all about works of art and entertainment and culture that have shaped who we are and how we see ourselves as Americans. Now we're turning to an icon series on Studio 360's hometown, New York City, for a new batch of stories about New York icons. But we need your help. And it doesn't matter whether you live in the tri-state area of New York City or just visit sometimes, or even if you've only seen New York on SNL. What are the New York works of art and objects and venues and institutions and songs that have shaped the character of the city and of American culture in general? What about the New Yorican Poets Cafe in Alphabet City, which launched a whole community of performers and poets? Or the Silence Equals Death logo that became a logo and rallying cry for AIDS activists? Or those blue takeout coffee cups that have a picture of the Parthenon and Greekish letters? Those are just a few things off the top of our heads that make New York, New York. So what's your New York icon nominee? Tell us by going to studio360.org slash nyicons and submitting your idea. Again, that's studio360.org slash nyicons. Thanks. Coming up. I want the women to be in flat boots, not have on heels like we see a lot of superheroes. Why the female warriors in Black Panther aren't dressed like sex goddesses. That's next on Studio 360. Studio 360. Today, we are taking a close look at some of this year's Academy Award nominees. Here are the nominees for Achievement in Costume Design. Black Panther. Tell me something. What do you know about Wakanda? It's actually like having a coloring book and someone giving you the crayons. You have to decide where you're going to infuse what. Ruth Carter's job is building movie worlds and characters with fabric, jewelry, and paint. She just got her third Academy Award nomination for designing costumes totally unlike anything she'd done in her 30 years before this. Everything about setting up the Black Panther was new. The script, for example, was secret. They sent me, like, somebody pulled some pages out of the Black Panther comic book, and I was like, is this what I have to prepare for this? And I understood the story of the Black Panther and the world of Wakanda by reading the pieces uh, that they sent me, but I also had to go on and do my own research. And so I decided that... with, you know, it taking place in a fictitious place in Africa that I could take from all of the elements of Africa and infuse it into the costumes. Carter has been accurately recreating period costumes for a while. Her costume designs evoked the world of Malcolm X during his 1940s zoot suit phase in Spike Lee's biopic. Hey, girl. Oh, I think 
and in Ava DuVernay's Selma, 1965, Alabama. We will not wait any longer. Give us the vote. After creating those simulations of history, real life, she was hired to help conjure this whole new world for Ryan Coogler's Black Panther. The movie has been massively popular, seen by 75 million people in the United States and even more around the world. And it's a serious contender for the Best Picture Oscar. The Black Panther has been the protector of Wakanda for generations. Now it is time to show the outside world who we are. So, Ruth, after doing these totally realistic evocations, what was it like to do this big superhero picture? I feel like I have been doing superhero movies all along. It's the same thought process. You know, Thurgood Marshall is the superhero. So there really is no difference in terms of the thought pattern. But I get what you're asking me. You know, this is a guy who could have exceptional powers, who wears a skin suit, a cat suit, and he is the king of a fictitious country. So how do you prepare for that? And, you know, I feel like it's the same. It's the same. You do a lot of research. The team at Marvel were already well into what they call visual development. So they had images that they showed me uh, my first day of, you know, the new Panther suit and of the, you know, Dora Milaje. The Dora Milaje being being elite female warriors. The elite female that, yeah, they protect the king. You know, they protect the Black Panther, who is the king. So that sounds like in this instance, there was probably more work that had been done on your job before you arrived than probably you'd ever encountered. You know, there is a brand that they want to kind of talk about and develop, you know, and it's it's no offense to the costume designer because there was a world of characters that I had to design in a very short period of time. So somebody giving me a leg up on what they (laughs) were looking for was, you know, a gift. It was a gift. For period pictures of what you've done many, Malcolm X, Selma, the butler, others, like how long does that research period last? Is it a couple of weeks, a month, typically? It depends on how much time you have. On Malcolm X, uh, Spike Lee contacted me months before I was on the actual film, and I wrote the Department of Corrections in Boston because he was incarcerated in Boston in his early years, and so I wanted to look at his file. I wanted to read his letters. Uh, That was months ahead. They granted me permission, and they sat me down in a cubicle, and I read his letters, and I looked at his booking photos and all the all of the details that they write down about the person. Uh, And um, I was able to Xerox a lot of pieces and then, you know, come back to uh, New York once we got started with this background for that part of his life. So I had maybe 14 weeks of prep on Malcolm X. I'm always researching. On Amistad, I brought a library to the wardrobe truck, and I had books because we were uh, were dealing with a period that was so long ago. There were weren't even photographs to look at. I right. had to look at a lot of art books and art history and understand like the artist's direction and the composition because we're painting a picture too. And I really want
wanted uh, some of these images that I see in the research to come to life. On Selma, I had pictures of the uh, march across the uh, Edmund Pettus Bridge. The president doesn't want us to march today. The courts don't want us to march. But we must march. We must stand up. We must make a massive demonstration of our moral certainty. And I really wanted to make sure that those first 20 people who were in the front of the line really looked like the first 20 people in the actual march. So if someone had a cap on and I was racing in there to make sure that cap was pitched right or there were enough, you know, trench coats or whatever it was. And so that research process and that implementation right. happens constantly throughout the shooting process. So the Black Panther, uh, not a real person, not a real place, not a real time, uh, all all entirely uh, fictional. Uh, so there's not references in the way there are here about Selma or the Harlem Renaissance or any of the rest. I needed to make him a part of the real world. Uh-huh. And I needed to connect to Africa in a way that people could see that he was a part of that continent. Of the real Africa on some level. Of the real Africa. Yeah. And that they paid homage to the ancient African traditions that are disappearing and that they knew from which they came. So you had the, the, the uh, I looked at the stick fighters, the Surma stick fighters, um, and how the men, you know, draped the cloth around their bodies. And I was inspired by, by that. I looked at the Tuareg um, people and how they used the beautiful purples and gold and silver. And, you know, and I looked at the Maasai warriors and, and infused that red color onto the Dora Milaje. And I needed something like that. I needed Ryan's direction. That's Ryan Coogler. Yeah, Ryan Coogler, our director. You know, I needed him to say the women in the Dora Milaje don't need to be, you know, scantily clad. These, these soldiers. The, yeah. These soldiers, these yeah. soldiers need to have protection. Right. They need to have arm rings and neck rings that are not only paying homage to ancient tribes, but is also really practical as far as protection as a fighter. Um, I want the women uh, to have this split-toe boot and be in flat boots, not have on heels like we see a lot of superheroes. Yeah. You know, we don't have to do that. We can do something different. We can be, we can be unique and we can actually be more realistic, and it will still be appealing. Yeah. You, you mentioned uh, the Dora Milaje, the, the soldiers, mm-hmm. uh, w- mm-hmm. one of whom is played by Lupita Nyong'o. So mm-hmm. talk about her costume from, like, top to bottom and the, the various inspirations for mm-hmm. each bit of it. Lupita's Dora costume was the conception of Ryan Meiderding's team at Marvel. So what I have interpreted from their initial concept was the Dora Milaje wear a 
uh, battle harness. So the harness I connected by the leather strapping that you see going around her shoulders and Ving down her front that's connected to a tabard in the front and also connects to a skirt in the back. So because there is this long vertical tabard down the center front, I felt like if you're going to have a a placard in the front of your body, it needs to have some kind of meaning. It mm-hmm. needs to have some type of purpose. So I used the intricate beading that you see in ancient African tribal ceremonies, which for the Maasai is this gorgeous red beading where they also paint their heads, they paint their bodies in this gorgeous red. So I upped the color, I intensified the red, and then I added the beading to this tabard so that it would have some meaning that they could hand this portion of their costume down to their daughter or their granddaughter who proved to be worthy of protecting the king. The drape in the back um, I made up in leather because of the Himba tribe. The Himba tribe wear these leather drapes that have these rings on them and studs on them made out of metal so that when they move you hear this jingling uh, and it's a very light sound but you can hear it and uh, when all the girls are dressed and they're coming to set you actually hear them approaching it's magnificent and it should it should go in a museum it should go to the metropolitan museum thank you it didn't take very long at all for Black Panther super fans and cosplayers to make and wear versions of your costumes at yes. Comic Cons. Yeah. How does that make you feel? I am so, like, it's the best form of honoring, you know, what I have done because they're already affected by the imagery. And that feels to me like it has filled a big void in the cosplayer world where you uh, didn't have someone that maybe looked like you that you could really, you know, work on that costume and compete in the competitions that they have and, and actually feel like, you know, you have done everything, including your own human being self, you know, looks like what they look like. Right. And I think it was a, a, a void in the cosplayer's world that there weren't enough African-American superheroes in that genre. So I am super honored. Ruth Carter, thank you very much for explaining to me more than I'd ever known before about movie costume design. Thank you. It was a great talk, and I appreciate being on. You can see Ruth Carter's costumes in Black Panther, which is available on DVD and Netflix. And if you want to see some of those designs right now, check out some of her photographs and concept art at studio360.org. Coming up... Another essential behind-the-scenes craftsperson... The movement director who helped turn Rami Malek into Freddie Mercury. It's actually the invisible work that was the most important to get. I remember him saying to me, are we going to do any of Live Aid? And I was sitting there like Yoda going, you are doing Live Aid all the time. The making of Bohemian Rhapsody, that's next on Studio 360.
Studio 360. We're four misfits who don't belong together playing to the other misfits. The outcasts, right at the back of the room, who are pretty sure they don't belong either. We belong to them. That's Rami Malek as Freddie Mercury in Bohemian Rhapsody, the movie about him and his band Queen in the 70s and 80s. For that performance, Malek had the look, the prosthetic teeth, the particular vocal affectations, but he also especially nailed Freddie Mercury's moves. She's a killer, Now, you might think that this gesture, that posture, every twist or turn is the actor's choice. But just like with wardrobe or makeup or the rest of it, actors often have experts guiding what they do with their bodies. Somebody like Polly Bennett, who's a movement director based in London. I know that Rami has said that I just spoke his language, which I think for him was... Um, imagination. Hers is one of those little-known but essential show business jobs that make a character or particular scene look and sound believable. Sometimes movement can be something like working with an actor that's playing with a disability or pregnancy or has to age as part of the narrative of the story. And sometimes it can be really invisible. So the movement that is invisible and, and buried in the actor's character choices. So fundamentally, it's about empowering and liberating actors' bodies. In her decade or so as a choreographer and movement director, Polly has spent most of her time working in the live theater in London. But for every medium, she says what she does is always based on study and observation and inference, which is where she started with Freddie Mercury. I just love watching him in interviews. I love my job, but I hate talking to people like you. (laughs) Thanks. You're the last person I'm talking to, so you probably get the best interview, darling, don't I? And isn't it amazing how he... He sort of always has a cup in his hand or he's fiddling with a a cigarette or he's looking down and the way that he Uh turns his mouth over his teeth is always down and up rather than up and down. And when Rami said, why do you think he walks like that? I was like, well, I mean, his band is called Queen. So I don't know this is why he walks like this, but I imagine, you know, he's endowing, he's embodying the word Queen. He's heightening, he's broadening, he's taking up space as someone that came to England and, you know, at school wasn't really allowed any space because of his ethnicity and where he'd come from. This is all the stuff that makes a person a person. Um, and for an actor, that's... That's gold dust, isn't sure. it? Which means that an actor has something to play rather than a thing to do and copy, but doesn't really know why it's happening. So you had seven or eight months uh, before the movie went into production to to prepare. There, there must have been a ton of research for you to do. Oh, my goodness, yeah. A lot of my work was actually going to images uh, and then reading books about his life and firsthand Um, experiences of people that have have spent time with him, uh, as well as watching interviews. How would you describe yourself as an artist? How would you say? 
No, myself as an artist. I'm just a musical prostitute, my dear. Just a, <laughs> Organised or not? Oh, who cares? Disorganised and organised. That's an asshole question to ask anybody. And as well as watching the concerts, of course, I, I could start tracing repeated behaviour and mannerisms that, that appear in certain situations and um, and start thinking why they appear at certain times and trying to link them together. You know, Freddie Mercury is famous for you know, running across stage and... Mm-hmm. Um, punching the sky, you know, that's probably all our default Freddie mm-hmm. Mercury impressions. Mm-hmm. But in finding out that he was a, he boxed at school and he was a long distance runner and he actually quite liked golf, you know, you learn those things and then you see them on stage. You see him run across the stage. You huh. see him punch the sky. You see him uh, use his half mic as a sort of golf club and sort of simulate um hitting a ball with it. Interesting. But then you do the extra thing. You just go beyond that slightly more and go, well, why are those sports Freddie's sports? There's there's another layer to understanding him, which is that he does these solitary sports. Uh That tells us a lot about who he was and what he was trying to do. Things that you can win at. (laughs) Things that you can, that require a lot of energy. So that made me think as a movement coach, right, so he's a person that has a lot of stamina. He's got a lot of force in his upper body because mm-hmm. he hits things and he hmm. um, punches things. So that means that then the next step is to go to Rami and go, right, we're going to do loads of upper body work so that you've got that same or you've got as similar as possible feeling towards your upper body as Freddie did. And would you talk about uh, specific moments in the script and scenes, just in terms of how he smokes, how he stands, how he gestures? Would would you work through each of those, this bit of this scene? Is that how it worked? I think my approach fundamentally was to lay the foundations of of Freddie's movement heritage, as I've called it. Um, So to lay that in Rami's body so that he always had a vocabulary to use when we got to specific concerts or, you know, as you say, like storytelling moments where he's, you know, at the press conference in the film. As the leader of Queen, as the leader of Queen, do you feel responsible for the success of the I'm band? not the leader of Queen, I'm only the lead singer. Do you ever doubt your talent? No, that's a stupid question. So it's actually the invisible work that was the most important to get. Like, I remember him saying to me, are we going to do any of Live Aid? We, <laughs> like, we haven't done any Live Aid. And I was sitting there like Yoda going, you are doing Live Aid all the time. So the finale of the film, uh, last 15 minutes of the film, is almost a real-time reproduction of this famous Live Aid performance. Uh, for listeners who weren't there or around then or don't remember, it was 1985, this gigantic... Uh, fundraising concert for victims of the Ethiopian famine, a concert in London where Queen played, a concert in Philadelphia, huge deal, Bob Dylan, U2, David Bowie, Queen. Um, and it's a famous moment, right? And, and certainly in the history of Freddie Mercury, a gigantic moment. And you were instructed to do an exact replica of him and Queen and that? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes, I was. <laughs> um I watched it about um, 300 times Mm -hmm. and probably um, try and work out what it is that he's doing that makes him better than anyone else that performed at Live Aid that day. 
I mean, Freddie performed on that stage, never giving an absolute hoot that anyone in the future, any person from the future would look at that footage and be trying to replicate it. Mm -hmm. So he is freestyling his heart out and, um, and responding incredibly in the moment to things that are going on in that stadium. And the more familiar I became with it, the more I actually realised it was mostly about musicality and confidence. And so they were my sort of, you know, in my notebook that I've got for Bohemian Rhapsody, I've pretty much written that on every page. I started feeding movements that I saw in that concert into all of my training with Rami. So you had to figure out for everything why Freddie did that and then sort of communicate that to Rami and have him understand the reason for each of these little two-second moves. Yeah, I think that's why it's a successful sequence because Rami is being spontaneous because he knows what the thought is behind the movement. So I'd love you to walk us through part of that sequence, the opening of the Live Aid performance at, at Wembley Stadium. As Rami performed it in the movie... Uh, describe the movements he's making and, and the Freddie narrative that you laid out for him to, to explain each movement. Her Majesty, Queen! He comes onto the stage and he waves. He comes right across to the stage right side, the far side of stage. I'm here. I've arrived. I've not seen you for ages. I'm going to entertain you on this side of the stadium. I haven't said hello to the people in the middle, so what I'll give them is a little jazzy move, little punches forward. And he travels sideways across the front of stage. He claps his hands. Yes, I'm ready. Taps the piano stool. It's his old friend. He sits down on it. He plays a chord. It's not quite right. He's twiddling the knob. He shows that he's a musician. He puts his hands down. He waits. And then he starts. The audience cheers. He looks at them, thank you very much, and then goes into his own world. Famously is the first thing that they shot, but we had sort of three weeks with the other actors playing the, the band members, mm -hmm. um, where Rami and I had been separate for so long, and then I had to work on creating a, a band mentality. So we had lots of fun sort of getting the dynamics of the group and feeding that into the performance. So there's various moments in like Hammer to Fall in the sequence where we sort of made up that Freddie and Brian had a little sort of, um, like it's like competitive edge in this performance. Mm. So Freddie goes up to Brian and he's sort of playing the half mic as a guitar next to Brian May. And then Brian does an amazing guitar solo and we, we made up that Freddie goes, oh, that's too good, I'm going to walk away. So he walks away and he goes down to the, the stage left side of the stage and he does a little flamboyant sort of almost little dance solo. And it's almost like, oh, I've, I've, I've given you some attention over there, but actually I'm going to take the attention over mm. here so the camera has to follow me over here. 
so it, it was really fun putting that together with the boys because it especially when the rest of the film is about their relationship what a thing to start with to see where right. they get to and 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 work out the dynamics of that relationship Holly Bennett is a choreographer and movement director in London. She's been working lately with the new actors in the upcoming season of The Crown on Netflix, who include Olivia Colman as Queen Elizabeth and Helena Bonham Carter as Princess Margaret. And that's it for this week's show. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is... Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is Andrew Adam Newman. Our sound engineer is Sandra Lopez Monsalve. Our producers are Evan Chubb, Lauren Hansen, Sam Kim, Zoe Saunders, Tommy Bazarian. Our production assistant is Morgan Flannery. And I'm Kurt Anderson. He is freestyling his heart out and responding incredibly in the moment. Thanks very much for listening. Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360, maybe Robert Johnson made a deal with the devil, maybe not, but there's no denying what he did with a guitar. I went to the it's wild. It swings, it drives, it cries. It's just a beautiful thing. Robert Johnson's Crossroad Blues, the newest installment of Studio 360's American Icons, that's next time. I